Hi Venters and welcome to another episode of Real Stories. This is a theatre and art series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker, and presented to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Every Real Stories episode's unique theme tune is of course provided by good friends in Eka, and in each episode of Real Stories, we discuss my special guests' theatrical careers, the pieces of work that have meant the most to them, issues within the industry and the arts, and of course, their mental health journeys. This is Real Stories. My special guest for this episode of Real Stories is an actor, producer and fellow Huddersfield Town fan. Danny Crane is best known for his roles in the TV show adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, The Serpent Queen, TV show Wasted where he starred alongside Sean Bean and Pirates of the Caribbean, Salazar's Revenge. He also has credits in shows like Skins, Casualty, Trolleyed and Poldark. I first came across Danny, as I'm sure many people my age did, in an episode of The Inbetweeners where he played a classic big drinking university student called Daniel who plays drinking games with the main cast before Neil wets the bed shortly afterwards. In this episode of Real Stories we talk about how Danny got into acting whilst at Leeds University, performing as part of the National Youth Theatre before pursuing it full time and how he broke into TV and film. For Danny's mental health, we discuss the positives that therapy has given his mental health, how he dealt with having mental health issues in his family and supporting those people as a teenager and adult, and we finish by talking about fatherhood. We also may sprinkle a little bit of Huddersfield chat here and there, although at time of recording, this is the day after we've lost our first game of the season, so that may not happen either. <laughs> this is Danny Corain's Real Story. Danny, welcome to Real Stories. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. I said in the intro, but as many people my age probably discovered you, it was a very minor episode of Inbetweeners where you had a very comical sketch, shall we say, before more shenanigans went on with Neil in that episode. And having just survived another relegation at Escapers Town fans, I'm not going to talk too much about town on this episode because we lost yesterday, which was quite a bad result. First off, how are you, mate? I'm good. I'm really, really good. A bit disappointed with the loss yesterday, but we move on. What do footballers say? Do they say something like, We go again? We go again, that's it. We go again. <laughs> we go again. Yeah. I have to say also thank you to Matt Shaw for helping me connect with you, Danny, and I have no doubt he'll message me something rude after this pod goes out. So without further ado, <laughs> are you ready to start the show? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start your Real Stories episode by talking about your theatrical journey, Danny. So firstly... How and why did you get into acting and fall in love with it? The arts, producing, directing, everything in between. As a kid, I'd always enjoyed like playing characters and messing around. And actually, linking this to Huddersfield Town, I don't know if you remember, or your dad might remember, there was a video called The New Beginning. No, a new beginning when Warnock took over. The year that he got us promoted back in I think 94. I was born in 94. You were born? Oh, God, I feel <laughs> old now. I think I was like 10 or 9 or okay. something. I used to regale people at parties because I learned these, there was a couple of dressing room sort of things that he used to do that, mm. that were in the video. And I used to learn them and then regurgitate them to like my dad. I do dad that to my dad friends. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I used to love doing that. And that was sort of part of it. And also linking it to what we're going to talk about later on. It's escapism for me, mm. playing a character. I don't know. I find it really fun to not be me. It's nice to be someone else. And so playing characters and 
doing plays and then TV roles, those anxieties we have as individuals, they go out the window because you're playing someone else who might mm. not have those anxieties. That's probably why I think I got into it in the first place is it was a escapism, mm. most definitely. That's- that's really profound. That actually speaks to me quite a lot because I do voices a lot. All of my mates know I do hundreds of impressions and stuff. And I used to act yeah. back in the day, which is why I'm doing this series. And what you said there about not being yourself, and that really speaks to my mental health story about being bullied because I guess I'm just working this out now, actually, in my head as I do this podcast that because I was acting and stuff, I wasn't myself and therefore I could be myself in a way. Did you feel that commonality as well? Yeah, definitely. And also there's a thing that, that I don't know, there's a... I can't really describe it. I mean, I don't think you know that as a child. I don't think no, you put two and two no. together. But I think there is a commonality with people who work in the arts and who create things about that, about having stuff that's gone on in their past or anxieties. And their art is a way of getting that out. You know, mm. like we talk about therapy later on and like the idea of talking about the way you feel and getting that out of your system. Art's pretty similar to that. It does mm. feel like you sort of regurgitate all the stuff that's inside you. So yeah, it feels like therapy sometimes being on stage. You can tap into some of the stuff that you've been through depending on the character you're playing. But also it gives you a rest from, for someone like me whose anxiety is always flying around their head and 5,000 thoughts a second. And for me, being on stage or being in front of a camera, those thoughts actually calm down because I have to concentrate on somebody else and something else. And when it comes to the theatre, for every wannabe actor or actor or, or, or even a Hollywood actor, what was your first exposure to the theatre as a child? Was it Panto or was it something else? There were two things. I saw Panto in Huddersfield at the Lawrence Batley Theatre that was hilarious. And I remember thinking, oh, that's really fun and watching all the different characters. And I was mm-hmm. only about seven. And then also, when I was about seven, my mum and dad had got tickets to Les Miserables in Manchester. Oh, I hate that. I hate that musical so much. But if if you like it, it's fine. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm not even saying that I like it. But what I mean is, is like, it was the first time I'd ever been anywhere like that. because That big show element. Yeah. 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 And and they had a live orchestra then. And and I only went because they couldn't find a babysitter. So I was sat on the second row with mum and dad. And I remember hearing the overture. It was literally like a 30-piece orchestra. And I just jumped off the seat and I went, wow, this is amazing. And dad was like, sit down. That's not what you do in theatre. But it was just hearing the music live for me was like, I've never heard music like that. I'd never heard like 10 violins playing at the same time. So I just thought that was astonishing. Yeah. So Mm. those were the two things that I saw at that age. And also my sisters did dancing and stuff. They were younger than me. And so I used to go and watch all their shows. And then at one time... When I was about 10, they went, do you want to come in and do some tap dancing? And I tried a little bit of that. And from a young age, I'd started, I'd already started like seeing this stuff and going, oh, that's incredible. Let's fast forward to university now, because you got into acting semi-professionally, shall we say, first as a hobby during your physics degree at Leeds University. So did that allow you to, in the words of Neil Warnock, just enjoy it more than your (laughs) peers who were going to drama schools from a really early age and sort of laser focused on becoming actors. They might have had pushy parents and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, it was a hobby and my grandma applied to National Youth Theatre or, or, or told me about the audition and I went along there and, and yeah, I mean, I, I never really wanted to be an actor at that point. It was a hobby that I really loved and I knew I was quite good at it. You know, where I'm from in Huddersfield, people don't say to you, do you want to be an actor? I was clever, so I did physics and maths and all that stuff, so... People say you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a teacher. No one would ever say, are you going to be an artist? It's just not mm. something that people say in Huddersfield. 
I don't find it might have changed now. Back in the in the nineties, early noughties, nobody was saying that. So yeah, it was a hobby and and I think, yeah, the people that I've met who've been to drama school, they always feel like they're in competition with other people who were who were in their year at drama school. And I've never had that. For me it's just been I just feel like I wake up every day doing this job and it's a joy because I still feel lucky to be doing it. I don't. I, it's a hobby. It's like mm. it's like being a footballer. It's incredible. It's incredible. You know, it's such a tough industry to get into and to get to where I've got to. I just feel really lucky and privileged to do it. You spoke there about classmate. And I think this is a really interesting angle because you went to Leeds, great university, full of lots of people from different backgrounds. It's also kind of known in a few circles as a place where private school kids go if they're not clever enough to go to Oxford and Cambridge. Durham's yeah. another one like that. Manchester yeah. a little bit. So when you encountered these people from a completely different class background, especially in drama, which tends to be an industry where people from privileged backgrounds tend to gravitate, how did you deal with that class clash? Did you just get on with them straight away? Did you feel a bit of imposter syndrome? How did you feel? Yeah, I always feel a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I mm. think like society sort of does that to you. I soon realised, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm just as good, if not better than you guys. <laughs> like you've read a lot and you've gone to see loads of plays in London and stuff, but... When we do a scene together, I don't, I don't actually feel that intimidated when we actually do the scene. And what you realise with our industry is there's lots of nonsense around the outside of it. And there's lots of PR and people talking a good game. But then when you actually get on the pitch, I like to call it, or on the stage, and you do a two-hander with someone, you go, oh, no, no, yeah, no, you're not, you're not as good as you make out. Most people. Sometimes I think, I think those schools and those people who went to private schools, I was talking about this recently on a job, they're so confident. They talk yes. a really good game, but that's not necessarily the same as being really good in the game. And I think there's a big difference there. And I, like for anyone who listens who might want to be an actor or just starting out, I think that's the key is is that these people who talk a good game are not necessarily good at the game. Exactly. And, and you know, I find it a little bit similar to you in the sense that, yes, I've come from middle class background predominantly, but I went to a very, very working class state comp and then went to a grammar for sixth form. But I still had that mentality a little bit when I came to university of this is a big new world. All these people in my politics class are talking a good game. And I thought, blimey, these people must be getting firsts and 80s and stuff. And I went, oh, hang on, I'm getting better than you. What's yeah, going on? And you exactly. realise very quickly that they're not what they say they are. Exactly. And there's something about just being good at the job and not the rest of it. I mean, like I'm not, you know, you only have to look at politics, for example, in this country yeah. and how many of those guys went to Eton in, on that front bench and they're all clueless. And so I think, I think that's a really good thing to make art with. Like I can do this. I don't have to talk about it and I don't have to make a big deal about the fact that I can do it. But I know inside there's like an iron core of, I'm quite good at this. And I think it's good to hold on to that. You spoke earlier about National Youth Theatre. Yeah. And this is a place where so many actors, very famous actors now, have cut their teeth. So what was your experience like here and how did it give you that platform to make your hobby into the career you have now? It was an incredible place, really. When I did the course, the first year that you get in, you do like a three-week acting course. And I didn't really enjoy it. I was going through something we'll talk about later. I'd had this drug for acne called Roaccutane. Yeah, I've been on it twice, mate. Been and it, it sent me, it sent yeah. me a little bit loopy. I was really, I, it, yeah, it can happen, mate. Yeah, yeah. I took it at seventeen, but I took the no pain, no gain approach and just got yeah. through it. But I, I, it's affected a lot of people in different ways. Yeah, yeah, it's, it sent me a bit loopy. Anyway, I was doing my course when I was having like a weird time on this stuff, so I didn't really enjoy the course. 
And there was a sliding doors moment where my mum and dad were worried about me. So they drove to London and they were like, do you want to leave the course? We'll take you home. And I was like, no, there was something stopped me from going home. And it's a good job I did. I don't know. I think it was inside me. I don't know. I just said, you know, it was on the roll of a dice in my head. And I went, no, I'm going to stay and finish it. And so glad I did because I wouldn't be an actor now if I'd not finished it. Because then the year after they did a production of Kez, which is obviously set in Barnsley. So I got a a role in that. And then I did like four productions in my summer holidays during university that were amazing, you know, working in London on London stages. And slowly but surely, some agents came to one, quite a lot of the big agents, and I'd not written to them. And they were all like, would you like to be an actor? And I was like, "Uh, not really thought, not really thought about it. And then I met them. And then the one that I actually signed with, who I'm still with now, she was like, I think you should finish your degree. A lot of the others were like, oh, quit your degree, come and be an actor, it's amazing. I really wanted to finish it because mm. I like to finish what I've started. So the agent that said finish it is the one that I'm with now and it was the best decision ever. But it was a real sliding doors moment. And the great thing about National Youth Theatre in comparison to drama school, and I'm not digging out drama school, I never went, so I don't know. But the great thing about National Youth Theatre was it was about having fun. It wasn't taken as seriously as it is at drama school. So we had fun, and then we'd put this fun that we'd created on a stage in front of everybody in London. And the productions were really good, but it was predominantly about enjoying that process. And so I have to thank National Youth Theatre for everything, really, because without it, I wouldn't be an actor now. You spoke earlier about the stage. Just tell me in depth and the listeners, what does being on stage provide for your mental health? For me... It's two things at once. It's It can be like therapy. So I did a play about someone with severe mental health problems a few years ago, and I've never had mental health problems as severe as this character, but I've been close to it and I have family that are there. That was like therapy because I had to go there every night in my head. It was like a release of of all that emotion that I have underneath. Was it education as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We had charities work alongside us and psychologists and stuff. It was it was an amazing thing to do. And also, I'll open up about this later, but my granddad on my mum's side committed suicide and my mum's brother, so his son, tried a couple of times when I was younger. So suicide's been around underneath a lot in family-wise. And so doing a show that had that in it, I felt like I had to do, because it's sort of like, I don't know, you feel like you've got a duty to Mm. show some of it because you've been touched by it. And then on the other side, like I said earlier, when you're playing these characters that are not you, so other characters that maybe don't touch on something you've been to. For example, in The Serpent Queen, I play a character who's really rich in France in 1580. What's great about that, that's like escapism, because he's (laughs) nothing like me. So it's really nice to just sit inside him. It's quite fun, actually. I turn off all the wiring thoughts, the you know, the whizzing thoughts and the anxieties and the intrusive thoughts are all turned off because I'm playing this guy who doesn't have them. I want to pick out some of your most important roles now. You mentioned the Serpent Queen. I want to start with a play called Jerusalem, yeah. which seemed really important to you when we mentioned it off air. And it happened 12 years ago now, I'm right in saying, and it yeah. ended up on both the West End and Broadway. So how did that feel so early on in your career when you end up at two places very iconic most actors dream of being on did it feel real at the time at the time it was just the greatest it was like being in a rock band i can't describe (laughs) it it was like it was like all your dreams come true you know and to be in a production 
that was so iconic and obviously Mark Rylance won all the awards for it and it was huge for him. I think it catapulted him into Hollywood. He's an astonishing actor. So for a young actor, it's an amazing thing to go and learn and stand opposite him 500 times because it's made me 10 times the actor. And so that's something else I've always wanted to do is try and improve on every job. What can I take from this job? that will improve me. And like obviously working with Mark every night, it was just like the greatest lesson you could possibly have. When we first started it at the Royal Court, I think I was 23 or 24. I was like the youngest of the of the leading cast. <laughs> I was fine in the play, but you know like when you're starting out and you still have those thoughts in your head while you're doing the play, like, oh, am I good enough? Is this good? Everybody else is really good. Mark's amazing. And I had to really fight with that so that when we went to the West End and Broadway, I really improved in the show because I'd sort of had a word with myself and gone, come on, come on, you can do this. As Warnock would say, you've got to die to get three points. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Come on, let's do this. Stop worrying about it and stand your ground. You can do this. And so, you know, I went on a real journey from when we started at the Royal Court to the end in the final West End run over those three years. I really improved as an actor, but mostly my confidence went, through the roof Mm. so yeah I mean again sliding doors moment I'd auditioned for a Ricky Gervais film and been to his office and met him a few times and didn't get that role devastated I was young and it would have been amazing and you know I must have had six recalls and you're like oh god this is gonna happen and then I ended up getting to play Jerusalem and it was just so much better Mm. It's such a such a more important job to me in the long run because of what I learned on that job. You spoke earlier about imposter syndrome. And I wonder if this play was also a great way for you to overcome that because obviously Mark Rylance wasn't the actor that he is now. However, he was probably still a bit of a name back then. So did working alongside him day after day after day, not just humanise him, but perhaps humanise yourself to other big time Hollywood actors that you could work with in the future and say, oh, actually, they're just the humans just like me. Yeah, exactly. And the great thing about Mark is he's a really generous person. Um, I remember saying to him at the end of the first run at the Royal Court when I was having this thought about, I'm letting the intrusive thoughts in too much. I'm worrying too much about whether I can stand toe-to-toe with these guys. I sort of had that chat with Mark and he was like, we all have that. Mark says he still has that now, but he just got used to turning the dial down on it. So what you do is you never completely get rid of it. You know, like that guy on your shoulder who's telling you you're rubbish all the time. My therapist tells me if you put that person in the other room, you never get rid of it because it's also a really good part of you. It drives you forward that mm. that sometimes. But it's not that useful when you're in character. So you leave that person in the dressing room. And if you can imagine that, so they're still there and you might go in after you've done a scene and they might be there going, that wasn't very good. But that's fine in the dressing room. But when you're actually doing the job, like Mark says, you need to be clear and you need to do as much as you can to quash those intrusive thoughts and those negative thoughts. As I mentioned in the intro, despite the minor size of your role, you are part of a cult classic show that was The Inbetweeners. How yeah. did the role come about and how do you look back on it? Did you know it was going to become as big as it did? Do you still get people coming up to you now? Yeah, people still come up to me now. It was it was really good fun. I mean, we only shot those scenes over a couple of days. Um but it was great fun. It was great fun to work with the you know, the cast that were on it. But I think I'd been up for another role. I can't remember what it was called. I didn't get it. And then I went in for this. And obviously, like, sounding like I do and being from where I'm from. And also, having been to university and done those drinking games, I think if I hadn't got that role, I might have had to quit. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, like, yeah. Back then in my early 20s, I mean, that was, yeah. 
those sort of drinking games, I'd done a lot of that. I want to move on to another really big moment for you, mate, which was Pirates of the Caribbean. We had a significant role in the fifth and at time of recording final Pirates of the Caribbean, but there might be more, I don't know. Yeah. That came out in 2017. So how did you feel when you landed the role? And as a fan, I imagine that you were, how did it feel also working with someone like Javier Bardem, who just oozes charisma and just class? It's just fantastic. I mean, like that was one of those, again, pinch me moments when you get the call. And it was it was such an amazing thing to be involved with. I mean, those big Hollywood things, they're not as cool as, as they might look. <laughs> because you no, know, because it's long hours and you're mm. there for six months. We were in Australia for six months. And on those Hollywood films, you don't film much every day. They can be long and laborious. But then you work with someone like Javier and you just go, oh, he's just a wonderful actor to watch. And the same with Johnny Depp. I mean, like, I had lots of scenes with Johnny, and he was he was so generous in the scenes and so on it. I mean, I, I have to say I had, I had great fun on that on that gig. I mean, I think sometimes those big blockbuster Disney, it's a massive machine. It's not necessarily the most rewarding as an actor, but it's also an amazing thing to do for what it may lead to, but also it's just nice to be, to you know, to do scenes with Johnny Depp, you're learning so much watching him play and form a scene. And, you know, you watch Javier Bardem at the read-through and you go, oh, wow, these are people that I've watched for years they're, and they're all incredible. Yeah, I mean, Javier Bardem for me is one of the greatest Bond villains ever in Skyfall. Oh, Mommy was very bad. <laughs> he's fantastic. <laughs> I don't know how he does that with his face like that. Oh, It's so fantastic. So he's such a good actor. And he's a lovely guy as well. He took us all to the rugby. He's, he's just a nice guy, Javier. He's a uh, big... And he's locked out in the wife department as well with an yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's well, got it all going on. <laughs> yeah, she was there. They were there with the kids. So she... And he took us all to the rugby and, he, you know, he's really into football. He's an Atletico Madrid fan. He's just like really normal. And that's the other thing. You work with these people and you go, they're no different to us. When it comes to TV, you worked with another Bond villain in your biggest TV role today, which was 2016's Wasted on E4, where you starred alongside another Yorkshire legend, Sean Bean, as my granddad used to call him, God rest his soul, Seen Bean for some stupid reason. <laughs> what did this show do for your career and mental health, given the fact that you were a lead in the role? Oh, it was fantastic to be in that. I mean, like, and to work with Sean. It probably didn't get enough viewers, but it it was. Um, I think being number one on it, number one on the call sheet as a character actor, you don't normally get to do that that often. So when you do, you do feel a little bit of pressure. But the director of that, Tom Marshall, and the writers were phenomenal, and the show had amazing reviews. We were meant to do a second season, and for whatever reason, Channel Four changed their mind. I think the viewing figures weren't amazing, but. Yeah, Sean Bean is just, what a legend. And he read the scripts and it sort of takes the mick out of him. You know, there's that whole scene where I, yeah, I read his IMDb. Yeah, 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 and he's all his IMDb stuff. And I'm like, not reading it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, IMDb, check out my IMDb and all that. And so I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, fucking hell, Goldeneye, you know. It's really funny that you mentioned that because last night I came in turn the TV on and Goldeneye was on and it was Bean. It always that. is. Always is on yeah, a Saturday on, night. Yeah, it's on so much. <laughs> For England, <But> yeah. James. <laughs> but no, I, I, had, I had a lot of self-belief after that job. I don't think it opened loads of doors because I think people knew I was, but I got confidence from playing it because, again, that character's nothing really like me, completely different voice, completely different. You know, he's a 24-year-old virgin. He's completely not... Danny. Getting that on record, Danny, just really, completely yeah, just not so like everybody me. knows I'm not a virgin. I'm not a virgin. Because uh, <laughs> he's nothing like me. I don't know. And I, I felt confident the reviews were really good. And I think we really did a really good job. And it's a shame we didn't do a second season. But again, that's out of your hands. I mean, mm. 
back then when we found out we didn't get a second season, you could sort of easily go down that path of going, is it my fault? Is it uh, not good enough? But actually, these things happen all the time mm-hmm. to good TV shows. It's not, it doesn't matter really. You just move on. You mentioned The Serpent Queen, and there was a second yeah. big TV show that you were on recently, which was Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. It's yeah. fair to say the book was popular. I never quite took to it. It's quite a niche story, but the show had some really massive stars, you know, likes of Patton Oswalt, Jenna Coleman, Sanjeev Bhaskar. Used to live near me, Sanjeev Bhaskar. Also was my chancellor at university. Stephen Fry, Lenny Henry, Mark Hamill. So how did you land your role, which was a pretty dark character to say the least, and what was your yeah. experience like on the show working with them? Oh, I mean, I had a great time. And again, this character, I mean, a dark role is an understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm putting it lightly <laughs> I there. mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to go too in-depth about that. I mean, it's sort of a dreadful thing to be asked to play. But when I auditioned for it, I, I was sort of like, I'd love to do this. It's so different to anything I've done before. And obviously mm. the character's American and everything that goes along with that. So I did a self-tape and then spoke to like the showrunner he said, can you do me another tape with just thinking about this? So I did another tape and then, yeah, and then I got a dialect coach because I can do accents, but sometimes it's just good to check that you're on the right track. And then when we shot it, I just had a great time and everybody on it was great and the scripts were fantastic. And yeah, I think they've just started shooting season two. So um, that'll be out soon. But yeah, I, I had such a great time and playing a character like that, you can have fun playing a character like that because it's comic book the way it's written. You do all your work and you do your research, but like also those people that are as dark as this guy, he's a murderer for anybody listening, of children, which I mean, yeah. Not <laughs> as dark as we get, yeah. It's, you can't get much darker. But there is a way that we, you can find the light in the performance, the lightness in the performance, and it also makes them darker then. So there's a way to like step through some of the treacle of that character that makes it slightly easier to negotiate the darkness for you it, as an actor. Yeah, because it unsettles the audience because they see that. And if they yeah. can see that, then they go, oh, well, it provokes this feeling in me, but this person's a horrific person. Now what yeah, do yeah, I yeah. feel after that? Yeah, yeah, because like he's quite smiley and quite cute, really. You don't think anything. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, my God, he's the darkest man I've ever seen. You know, mm. so that, that, was, that was fun to play with the audience in that way and... Everybody on board, the directors were fantastic and the other actors were all great. So yeah, another amazing job to be involved with. Mm. We're going to discuss this later in the pod and you've already touched on it in sprinkles already, Danny. But when it comes to how you've used therapy to help you as an actor, similar to this role, you know, life is not black and white. It always operates in shades of grey. So do you see that much more vividly because of the therapy you've done and, and how has it helped you as an actor as well in the roles that you've portrayed? Yeah, definitely. Like the idea of it's okay to be doubtful. I think having done science as a kid and, you know, the way the media is, you always want to do, I want to do things correctly. I want them to be a success. But actually as an artist, it doesn't really work like that. It's like, for example, my favourite band, the Arctic Monkeys. There are albums that are amazing and there are albums that are stepping tones to the amazing albums. And if you think about like that as an actor, that's what I've learned through the therapy is talking about how, Oh, sometimes, sometimes there's a fate in things and that like it's fine for something not to go well. And in fact, we were talking the other day, my therapist, Joanna, who's incredible, we were talking about how I'm feeling lots better and much better at like dealing with the emotions when they come. And, you know, we talk about like throwing the thoughts and feelings onto a whiteboard and even just getting them out and just like looking at them, but not feeling them is enough sometimes to connect them and go, oh, that's why I feel that. It's not a big Mm. deal. 
it's what I felt before. It's fine. And even just doing that's enough. But getting that out and sharing it is important. Yeah. And there was another thing I was going to say then. And I can't remember what I was going to say. And it was really good. <laughs> that's so annoying. That was a good enough point for me, mate. That was a good enough All point right. for me. The other issue that we're going to talk about before we reflect, mate, is accentism. So you're a proud Yorkshireman. You're a proud Arsenal yeah. Town fan. I'm a proud Arsenal Town fan most of the time, <laughs> depending yeah. on the results. So... <laughs> We both know that there can be a lot of snobbery in the biz in places. Have you ever experienced that when it comes to accessism and going back to social classes we spoke about earlier in the pod? Yeah, lots. Mm, lots. It's actually, it's interesting when people talk about diversity nowadays. Nobody, People still don't want to talk about that stuff and like access to the arts and how, you know, we talk about like everybody's identities, which is important. Of course it is. We've forgotten you know, class, mate, 100%. Yeah, their physical about all the time. Everybody wants to talk about their physical identities or their sexual identities, and that's all well and good, and I'm all for that. But nobody ever wants to talk about class now. I'm not going to mention this person's name or even what job they do, but this person is an actress. She's older. She's in her 60s. I was doing a play. We were both playing funny characters in this play when we did it in front of an audience mine went down a hoot hers didn't in the same respect you know that's just the way it was she said to me just before opening night she said yeah but you're always going to be funny you know you're working class uneducated and I, and I just I didn't say oh anything back. God. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I've got a physics degree. So what you've done there is you've put two and two together and got five. So I've got a broad Yorkshire accent and I like fooling around in this show. So I can't possibly be educated. Well, no, actually, I've got a physics degree. And actually, if you thought about the choices I'm making, they're all probably more intelligent than yours. It's just interesting. And, and I think you do feel that all the time. And... The job I've just done, you know, I would say like half the cast went to proper big private schools, public schools, like ones that we'd all know. And everybody like plays against that when you talk to them. They don't, they're not. Yeah, they always try and play it down, mate. Yeah, they play it down. They won't tell you. You have to really ask. It happens across so much of society. It's like, oh, but I went to a shit private school. Just fuck, just own your shit. Just say, I had the privilege. The doors yeah. were opened and I worked hard enough to go through them. Just own it and I'll respect yeah, and you. Exactly. And exactly. And I also had the privilege of not going. So there's also a nuance to it. But like, yeah, the whole industry, 44% of my industry, people who went to private school have got the jobs and only 7% of the country got private school. So you can see like, it's just wrong. I don't know how we change that on a big scale. I talk about it now and again. I think, again, as a country, not even just in the arts, we struggle to talk about that. Yeah, of course. Stuff. So, um, well, yeah. it, it comes down to access, it comes down to money. And you'll know as well as I do that a lot of kind of old school thespians have talked about their working class roots. So, the likes of our favourite, Sir Patrick Stewart, Serena yeah. McKellen, Dame Julie Walters, I think Judy Dench also as well has talked about it to yeah. some degree, about yeah. how they were all working class and got their starts through grants and other things and access programs, which don't seem to be about anymore. Do you think that is one element of it? But there's also probably other factors you could probably tell me too that I'm not even aware of. Yeah, I mean, it's that. It's also then even when you do go to drama school or you, you do get a grant or you do get in, you then start in the industry and everybody in the industry is posh. So you're fighting it all the time. Like I've been doing this job for 14 years and I've had a really successful career so far. I can't complain about any of it, but it's still, it's still something that I feel that even casting directors and people, they don't see beyond like 
where you're from. So like mm-hmm. as a working class person, they say, oh, working class, you know, overweight, whatever. So you can do these characters, but you can't do these. They'll put you but, in a box. Yeah. And the great thing about Serpent Queen is, for example, is is that like, I'm playing like the richest man in France, the, the most intelligent, poshest man in France. You know, I think people can play more than they think they can different characters. And I think that's the whole joy of acting. Mm-hmm. Like, if we all just play ourselves all the time, I mean, we're just boring as anything. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't want to go too much down a rabbit hole here, but there's a whole big thing at the moment about only certain people can play certain roles. You know, I won't mention anyone's name, but certain people have said only someone from a religious background can play someone with a religious background or someone who's from a sexual background can play someone with a sexual ality. Do you know what I mean? I just hate that because the point of acting is you're playing someone else. Yeah. Well, that's the skill, isn't it? And the whole idea, yeah. I mean, I, I have my own thoughts on that. I, I'm well, we can talk about that off air, mate, yeah. No, I won't go into too much depth, but I, but I, I see where people are coming from. You yeah, know, to a, a natural, degree, sure, because of opportunities and, and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, opportunities but. and stuff. So I see it from the opportunities side. But also, let's change the opportunities side. But that doesn't mean to say that I can't play someone who might have a different sexuality to me. It's just nonsense. And to think that because I am heterosexual, I haven't had any of those feelings before about where you think about it. You know, when you're a teenager and you think mm-hmm. about these things, we all think about different things. Our heads are filled with information and useless information and thoughts that we've all had. Like, that's what you use when you're acting. It's not necessarily always an outward thing. We've all got souls. And, oh, that's the point I was going to say. Sorry, just to jump in. Go on. I was saying to the therapist the other day that without any trauma, do you get good art? That is a good question. So let's say, let's say in an ideal world, we can cut out all trauma, all war, nothing bad ever happens to anybody ever. What's the point in the art then? And where does it come from? Mm. And so it's an interesting thing about like finding that balance between those two states that we all want to be happier but also, how happy do you want to be? Do you want to be ecstatic all the time? Would you have soul music, for example, mm. if people hadn't been through stuff? It's, or disco. It's an, yeah, exactly. It's an interesting thing to to think about when mm. you talk about this stuff. Or you can go down many rabbit holes. You know, the whole origin of pop punk was basically just a load of bands singing about how much they hated their, their hometowns and wanting yeah, to exactly. move out. Exactly. They like, were all working class exactly. and they'd had enough. Yeah. They'd had enough and they wanted to riot and you completely get that. So it's, you know, and I think it's the same for me as an actor. Like... Similar, similar feeling. No, you're, I think that's the. I think if there will be one overarching message of this pod, mate, I think that's a definite good one because I always hear about before we reflect. Every stand-up comic I seem to hear has had some sort of traumatic story that made them want to do stand-up. Like yeah. it's it just time and time again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And everybody's trying to cope with life's tough and being human is is hard. We've got these. Br- we're basically animals, but then we've got these brains that are like supercomputers that give us all these intrusive thoughts and make us think outside the box. You know that's why humans have advanced to where they've got to. But that means sometimes that we, yeah, that we've got to like unleash some of that stuff out of our heads, and that and the art helps us do that definitely. Let's reflect on this theatrical journey, Danny. What has been yeah. your proudest achievement on it so far? Wow, big one. I think honestly, I think getting to a place where I can be on stage and be completely in the moment and not worry about Danny or anything going on in Danny's head or the way Danny looks or anything, just being that character and being really truthful opposite someone. And that sounds really wanky, but rather than saying a job, it's like a feeling I've got in the last sort of four years since working with this particular therapist is that I feel like I'm, I'm completely in the moment where maybe when I was a younger actor, I was too worried 
that might be the biggest achievement. But I would say, like, job-wise, probably The Serpent Queen, because we've just done season two, and I love the scripts, and the character is so different to me, and it's just really fun to play. And as a final question, what has yeah. this journey in TV, film, national youth theatre, comedy, and the arts taught you about yourself? That we are all more capable of things than we think we are. We've all got a story to tell and we're all more capable of things than we think we are. We're taught really to, from school, like do this, do that, don't fail, don't try anything different, just be part of the crowd, survive, earn money, keep going. And actually sometimes I think we are forced into like having quite boring lives as people. And what I feel like I've done is gone against that. Against and the so, grain, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes that's tough and there'll be times where you don't have as much money as you'd like. Then there'll be times when you have loads and then... <laughs> but it's it's like... But there's, there's something about it that's like uplifting. A freedom. Yeah, there's a freedom there, which I probably wouldn't have if I were a teacher. That's how I feel. I mean, I might, that might, you know, you might have people sending letters about that, but I just think there's a freedom. There's a freedom to it. If they send them, I'll deal with them, Daddy. If they send them, I'll deal with them. I don't know. We've probably said loads in the last half an hour. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, there's a freedom to it. We've talked all about Danny, the actor, producer. I want to talk about your own mental health journey now, mate. So I ask all my special guests on this topic, this question first. Take me back to early life in Huddersfield, teenage years. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Danny we meet here? So the Danny you meet here, at first, I remember being five or six and being really anxious about time. And I remember being, especially at nighttime, I get into bed and, you know, I have a mind that never rests. So I'm always thinking. So unless I'm asleep, I'm just thinking, thinking, thinking. And even at five or six, I'd already got into that thing thinking about space and time. And I'd already sort of read about like time going on for infinity and trying to work out what infinity meant. And I used to have these big anxious moments where I'd run into my mum and dad's room and go, this is like at six years old. Mum, Dad, when you die, you're dead forever. How long does time go on for? Will the universe explode at some point? Really, like, mad, nebulous stuff. And I suppose my mum and dad did their best to deal with it. Eventually, my dad would just go, get to bed. You know, which is <laughs> which is probably what I'll say to Very my Yorkshire. daughter. We'll probably say the same to my daughter down the line. But it was, that I think that's when I first realised, oh, because my sister's never had anything like that. Mm. So my mind was different in that respect. And it was always like big questions about time and the big fear I had. And I'd have like out of body experience, like a panic attack about dying, but then time going on forever and I'm dead. It's so weird. Wow. And that's at six years old. So yeah, I'm already a little bit slightly mixed up. Mm. And then as I grew up, then I realized that my family on my mum's side, there was lots of mental health struggles in that. So as I became a teenager, I became more aware of those, that my granddad had killed himself before I was born, that my uncle, my mum's brother, had had struggles with his mental health throughout his life and had tried to commit suicide. And like I said to you earlier, this all came around a time when I was 16, 17, and I'd been on some drugs called Roaccutane mm-hmm. for... um 
what's it for? Um, acne. Acne. Yeah. Yes. For acne. And they sent me a bit loopy. You're not meant to drink on them, but I was at that age where I started drinking. And... You don't want to do a lot of things on them. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. You had to have blood tests and everything. Yeah. I, mean, blood, I had blood tests dangerous. every month. Yeah. You're not yeah. allowed to take them if you're pregnant because they can harm the baby if you're a Yeah. Woman. It was really, yeah. really like a strong drug. And apparently it's banned in like the EU and other places. So it's an interesting drug. Well, it's... well for, the, for the sake of my back and spine and face, I'm glad it wasn't banned here because honestly, <laughs> it changed my self esteem in my face when I had it off. And then yeah. I was on it two years ago. I got put on two pills a day at once. Wow. And the doctor said, because my back, my acne was so severe. It was cystic acne, basically. Yeah. And the doctor literally said to me at one point, if you can manage it, do three. And wow. I did three one day and I was fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this again. For me, it sort of really wrecked my mental health. I felt really mm, odd on it. it you're exhausted. You're exhausted and you're dry. And it's it's just the skincare routine for me that really yeah. affected me. I just didn't feel right on this drug. And then that coincided when with my mum and dad splitting up. And they'd split up a couple of times during my life. And... My uncle was living with us at the time when my mum and dad split up and it all culminated in this week after my 18th birthday where dad had left and my uncle was not in a great place because of that. And that's when I turned to food. So I had to really step up as an adult at 18 and look after mum because she was devastated and my younger sisters. And I had to carry on with my A-levels. I didn't miss a day of school or anything. And it was mm. a huge week. It was you were the man of the house, basically. You was the man of the house yeah. all of a sudden. And... I had really big A-levels coming up where I needed to get good results to do physics. I mean, they won't let you in without good results. And so what I did is I just passed my driving test. I used to drive, go and eat shit food on my own. And that was my way of sort of dealing with it. It's escape again, comfort. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. pushes the thoughts down. When you're eating, mm. you don't think negative thoughts. It's weird. I don't. Because you're doing something else and it tastes good. It completely gets rid of that thought for that, even if it's just for 10 minutes. So that's the journey I had as a child. And then in my 20s, I started doing this job and, you know, started thinking about therapy and stuff down the line. But as a kid, yeah, I mean, I had anxiety from... I was talking to my therapist recently about how I nearly died when I was born. So me and my mum had... Both me and my mum were really ill. When she was giving birth to me, we had to have an emergency cesarean. And then I didn't see my mum for like three weeks. I was in intensive care and so was she. And, you know, there's lots of research into that, like how that's not good for, like, cortisol in babies, the stress hormone. So I'm not saying that that's connected, but it's just interesting to think about that it can start from even that mm. age. What's your relationship like with food now? Is it is it different? Is it the same? Uh, it's, it, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's bad. It depends. If I, and I can feel myself going down that route sometimes. I'm still overweight. I'm not unfit because I exercise a lot. I eat too much. Mm-hmm. There's just no doubt about it. And that started around that time of that week uh, around my 18th birthday. So it's probably why I still still going to therapy is that's the last thing I need to solve. Really. I was going to say, is that something that you're going, you're going to work through or are working through to figure out how to... Yeah. Well, you figured out the tr- what the trigger was, but how to overcome the trigger, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. and I have lost the weight before in the past. So it's not really about the weight, actually. It's more about... The mindset. Yeah. It's about the binge eating and the... Mm. And the yeah, and the rush eating, like eating it quickly. And, mm. you know, there's loads to sort out in that respect. But like I said, you know, it's a constant battle, that stuff. I was saying the other day, if you're a drug addict or you're addicted to alcohol, it's really easy to cut those things out. You don't need them. But we all have to eat. So it's like being a heroin addict because it's like a heroin addict having to take a little bit every day. 
and then not be addicted again. It's tough with food, and I think mm. I don't think we give people enough respect who are going through that. For sure, mate. And, and hopefully on this podcast, maybe we've manifested it where you do get there in the future. Let's hope no, so. definitely, definitely. Yeah. You said something really interesting to me off air when you were talking about these mental health difficulties that your family members were having, mate, and when you became that man of the house and you had to take on that responsibility. And you said to me, you feared, am I turning into that person? Yeah, you fear... When you have your own mental health difficulties, you go, oh my God, am I going to be like my granddad? Am I going to go down that route? Because I'm the next in line on that side. And that's a huge worry for a kid to think about. And actually that worry started before I had the bad week and the racketing. So then when those things happen and you do feel bad, you go, oh my God, I'm turning into him. Oh my God, am I going to be like that? Did you almost see it as like a, social contagion that you could physically catch it felt like that yeah and it felt like it was in me i thought i thought oh my god i am like them and you think it's inevitable that you're going to end there and you know with the work and stuff you realize you're not you know my uncle my granddad they would never do any of the work i'm doing to not go that way if you see what i'm saying when did that mindset change mate where you thought, actually, I'm not going to be like them and this is how I'm going to do it or something uh, else? Probably about four years ago. Wow, okay. So doing this therapy with this particular therapist, I'd had bouts of therapy in my 20s because I knew there was something not quite right about my thought processes, but I didn't quite find the right fit. And then I found this woman about Joanna about four years ago and she's, yeah, it's changed my life completely, the way I think about things. Mm. You spoke earlier in the pod about this whiteboard, this metaphorical whiteboard to get all mm. your thoughts out. What other positive tools has therapy given you, mate? Oh, loads of things. Just sometimes to take a deep breath. I think it's easy when you have anxieties and to react straight away and feel all the feelings straight away. But ultimately, you are in control of some of this stuff if you want to be. And it requires a lot of work. So one thing, I did a little bit of meditation before I, I talked to you today, for example just because I knew I'd be talking about some of this stuff. I just did 20 minutes, eyes shut, just breathing, just trying to release anything that might be in the subconscious or in my mind. And meditation really helps. Yoga really helps me. Also, exercise is huge. I have, in the past, had sertraline because mm-hmm. that really helps with that whirring mind. So, you know, everybody has to find their own way through that stuff. But the whiteboard thing, visualization has probably helped me the most. Because I've got an imagination and I'm an actor, talking about putting those thoughts, those feelings and emotions. So something might happen and you go, wow, feelings, thoughts, emotions, 100 miles an hour. If I just step out of myself a minute and put them up on the whiteboard visually, even the thought of doing that and looking up at a whiteboard gets you out of your own head and you go, oh, that's why I feel like that about this. Because of that that's happened in the past. Oh, it's fine. I've thought that before and I've managed but what we all do, we tend to like things happen and we go, ah, we freak out before we take a breath and try and look at it from a distance. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's something mm. that I think has really helped me visualize it. And also, like I said earlier, that the little man on your shoulder, so the little you, the mini me who sat on your shoulder going, oh, you're rubbish or you're not very good at this or look at you, you're a mess or whatever. You get used to like putting him in the other room when you need to. You become more in control of him the more of this work that you do. So, yeah, those are the things. 
you've also become a father in the last yeah. two years. How has yeah. that changed your life, your families, and your mental health? Oh, I mean, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. She's amazing. Her name's Philippa. She's five months old now. And it was quite tough when she came because I was in, well, she was born and then I had to go to France for filming three days later. So for the last 20 weeks, the first five months of her life, her mum has had to do a majority of the parenting and that's been tough. And, you know, you, you think about, oh, I'm a bonded with her, but I am. She's amazing. And also we lost our dog about two months ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, mate. Yeah, it's horrible and he was amazing and all the other stuff. But having a child, it's interesting. You don't have time to worry about it. You don't have time to uh, mull it over and, and grieve it hugely. You have moments where it comes, but the baby requires all your attention. So sometimes I think having lots of things to think about helps as well, mm. weirdly. Lots of kind of good little things to think yeah. about. So it's a distraction from the bad negative things. Yeah, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with using distraction techniques. We all do that. None of this stuff that we talk about, you're never going to solve all the feelings and stuff that you've had for years. The idea that all of a sudden everything is going to be incredible is is not true. It takes years of work and talking about it and days where you feel like you've gone back three steps. But the work is the journey. I know that's a really wanky and it's in all the self-help <laughs> no, books. Say it, with your, say it with your chest, mate. It's fine. But you know what I mean? I've I do got get to say you, it. Get you. It, you know what I'm saying? And it, you read that everywhere. And I, you should read that and think, what are you on about? It's nonsense. But actually, it's true. It's not the destination. It's the journey. The journey mm. is life. And it's about finding your best way through it. And how can you get through it for you? And mm. for me, the main thing is talking about it and, and being open like we are now. When it comes to work-life balance, mate, I think for a lot of actors, they probably find it hard, men and women, without factoring a family into it. Now, the pros of this could be that because, like you said, some of your work is irregular, you probably have more time to spend at home. But then on the con side, you know, like you said, with Pirates of the Caribbean, you could be away for six months at a time. So how do you find that balance with you and your partner? Well, luckily, she's an actress as well, so she gets it. Oh, so That helps. Mm. And she is amazing. She's an amazing woman. And she always wanted to have kids and be at home and breastfeed for two years and stuff. So that makes it slightly easy for me because I've got one job and one job to earn money. But so that like also we, makes it more pressure in a way as well. <laughs> it does, yeah, yeah. There is a bit of that. And, like, luckily, though, The Serpent Queen is such a, a crusty gig in lots of ways that... <laughs> I don't have to worry too much at the moment, but that worry is always there when mm, you finish your mm. job and you don't, I just turned the play down just because I didn't want to be at home for a bit. But yeah, I mean, that'll always be there. And that's another thing that people don't talk about, that a lot of the reason why a lot of men take their own life or have these feelings is to do with the pressure of money. Mm. How many people get you know into debt with gambling and stuff like that and never tell anybody and then take their own life? You know, it's true that there is a pressure on men in society to provide and that's not easy and we don't talk about them as enough as men so many men like you said mate are struggling with their mental health they lack purpose direction yeah. belonging even as something as little as a solid social group a group of yeah. mates when you became a father did it give you an additional purpose or did it give you your true purpose an additional purpose because i think i feel like that's one part of the relationships that I've got, you know. I, mm. You know, I'm in love with my girlfriend and all my family, my sisters and stuff, and my nieces. I think it's additional. It's not mm. the only purpose being a father because, you know, the other purpose is to do what I'm doing and be creative. So 
this play I did a few years ago about a guy with severe mental health things. We've written a TV show about that, which we'd love to get made because hopefully that could be something that could help other people. So I think there is more than one purpose, but I think obviously having a, it's probably the it's probably the biggest one. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So similar yeah. question as before, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? That I and most people are stronger than they think they are. It's a very common answer, mate. <laughs> and also that my mum said to me when I was about 18, when I was having this big freak out that week, she said, you're in control of your own mind if you want to be. And I'd spent all my life not being that I thought she was mental when she said that to me. I really did. I thought she, I thought, I thought you were nonsense. And then in the last four years, she was completely right. You can be in control of your own mind and how your mind reacts to things. If you choose to do it, it just takes a lot of work because so much of the way we think and our fear and our anxieties come from society and the way we don't deal with anything properly. And nobody talks about this stuff. You know, they don't talk about this stuff at school or anything. And so when you realize that you can be in control of it, you feel quite powerful. And actually, it's a powerful thing. And being able to talk to you now, I feel really, the hairs are standing up on, on the back of my neck. So I'm going, do you know what? This is powerful to be able to share this stuff. Did it improve your relationship with her after that? My mum? Mm. I've always had a good relationship with my mum. But in think a different that, way, sorry, in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. I, I, I've said to her on a few occasions recently that you, you don't know how amazing you are, mum. I think what you do is when you've been through it and you feel like you're coming out the other side, I'm way more generous with like compliments to people. Because I mean it. Like everybody's amazing. Everybody's trying to survive. And just surviving is really hard in this society. So I Especially said to mom, now, mate. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, the young people now coming into the world of work and stuff, I mean, I don't know. Or going to university and coming out with 60 grand of debt. I just don't know how people cope. But that, I think people are stronger than they think they are. But it takes work to bring that strength out. And as a final question, mate. If you could go back and talk to that six-year-old Danny who was running into his parents' room, wondering about death mm. and the implosion of the universe, or that 18-year-old Danny who was feeling this big responsibility and burden in having to basically be the man of the house and look after his mum and his sisters, or that Danny who was thinking about maybe going to therapy the first time and not sure whether to do it or not, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? It's all going to be all right. It's just going to take a little bit of work. I can't, I feel a bit weird doing that. It's like playing a character all of a sudden. <laughs> I should be able to do this. This is wrong. I should not be struggling with this. This is the only part you should be in. I think it's because it's me. I think it's because it's me. I think it's because it's me talking to me. It's weird. No, what I would say to him is like, everything will be okay. You just have to take a breath. And there's a lot of work required, but ultimately you can get to the promised land. And the promised land is being in control of your emotions and your thoughts and feelings. And you can get there. It just requires a bit of work. Our final topic of conversation, Danny, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Right now, really good. Excellent. Yeah. On a scale of one to ten? 10. Oh, brilliant. I've yeah. not had many 10s, so we're going into no, this. No, no, I'm 10. I'm 10. <laughs> I feel 10. I've, I've just had a child and she's amazing. So at the moment, I'm 10. That might yeah, change yeah. when she starts running around. It might be <laughs> one. <laughs> what age were you, mate, when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Oh, I think when I was six. 
that it that was early. in my mind. Yeah. yeah, I really did think, yeah. I've always been really cerebral and like like I said, I have a mind that never rests, so really young, yeah. And can you remember the first time you ever talked about your mental health with someone? So the first conversation, who was it with? What did you say? And how did you look back on it? Did it feel like this big moment or burden or weight had been lifted? Or on the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I, I spoke to my mum after I'd been on Roaccutane when I was 17. So this was before... The big week where um, everybody's dad left and everything. And mm-hmm. that, that when I'd been on the Rakitin, I spoke to mum and mum said the now famous quote, you can be in control of your own mind if you want to. At the time, I was like, that makes no sense. But now I see it does make sense. So actually, it was a really good thing to say. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a particular sensation or a social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? The weather. Mm, SAD, seasonal affective disorder, yeah. a little bit of that, yeah. Tax bills. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> yeah, the weather, tax bills, people's little snidey comments, sometimes feeling like you've overshared or because I'm quite passionate, mm-hmm. you sometimes feel that like, because other people are not always that passionate. So you think, They're not on the level, yeah. <laughs> no, then you think, you think oh, I've, I've probably sounded like a wanker there. <laughs> so that sometimes, also looking in the mirror because I'm overweight, I don't particularly like doing that. So those four things. Okay. And then conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? First one, every time Huddersfield Town win, I normally feel much better. No, I'm joking. Say, I thought that was going to be joking. a trigger. Huddersfield Town no, loss. No, yeah, no, yeah. No, it's not actually. No, I've never, I've never been like that. I've never been too low when we lose or too up when we win. But no, like for me, for me, what do we take? Exercise was one. Meditation. Ex- exercise, yeah. meditation, visualization. Therapy, walking, obviously. Yeah. Therapy, walking in nature, antidepressants if you need them, or anti-anxiety if you need them. Sometimes it can get too much and you need that stuff. And to not think, oh, I don't want to do that. Nobody wants to admit that they need that help, but sometimes mm-hmm. you might need the help with a drug. So all those things. Mm. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? It can be self-help related or mental health related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a film, play, album any piece of popular culture a book called the four agreements and uh, it's a really not a big book but it's about taking control of how you react to things which is what i've talked about a lot the four agreements you can i think it's miguel don ruiz or something it's toltec so it's like i think it's shamanic stuff but it's all very straightforward but it's a really good book and actually A few people I've worked with recently who struggle with their anxiety, I've sent that book to. So that is called The Four Agreements. It's really good. It's really cheap on Amazon. Get it. I'll read it every few months. Brilliant. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? You'll be all right. Trust me, you'll be all right. Very Yorkshire, that. Trust me, lad. You'll be all right. right, (laughs) Just in Warnock's voice. Trust me, son. Trust me, me, son. You'll be all right. (laughs) Are you with me? Are you with me? Are you with me? <laughs> just just really enjoy it, really. Yeah, just enjoy yourself. Just <laughs> express yourself. <laughs> what do you love about yourself, mate? Uh, yes, well, <laughs> that's a tough one. That's like a... Th- that's like a... That's Come like on. With a therapist. I'll, I'll, no, no, no. I'll it's in there. It's guess. in there. It's in there. I'm passionate. I'm generous. You're a good dad. I, I'm a really good dad. And I think I'm a really good person. I try my best. I'm not perfect. No one is, but I try to be a good person all the time. And I'm honest. Love that. And authentic as well. Yeah, that's it. There you go. 
And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think that, first of all, we need to get rid of this government. I think we need to put more money into those frontline services. I pay for therapy privately, but there should be more of that on the NHS. I think we need to start talking to young men about this. Well, everybody, actually, at school age, at like primary school. Someone might correct me and say that that's happening, but I don't necessarily think it is. I think as British people, we don't like to talk about these things, but the more we can all talk about them, it's like Tyson Fury, for example. Some people don't like him, but I read his book and it it really helped me the way he got over the stuff he was going through about exercise and stuff like that. We need more of these role models to come out and talk about this stuff in an honest and like authentic way, like I'm trying to do. And yeah, those are the main things. Danny Corain, thank you so much for coming on Real Stories and the Just Checking In podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and talking to me, mate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you too. It's always lovely to open up about these things and you're an amazing host and it's amazing the work that you do. So keep at it. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Real Stories. I want to say a big thank you to Danny for being my special guest and for telling me his real story. I will put some links to where you can follow Danny on social media and find out more about his work in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in to this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review and give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk where you can find out all the other ways you can support Vent and the platform. If you've got another idea for who we should get on for the next episode of Real Stories, please let me know. I always love doing these episodes and I probably haven't done as much of them as I'd like to have done in previous years. So please do send me your suggestions. If you've got any contacts, also be great. Stay tuned for the next episode of Real Stories. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Behind.